if a stock that I really, really believe in, that I say I've already bought half a million shares at 20 cents and suddenly nothing has changed, but it's at 15 cents, yeah, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it because I, I mean, I believe in my own thesis. And if I liked it at 20 cents, why wouldn't I like it at 15 cents? Well, that's been Buffett's whole idea is that you should be excited when a stock that you own that's how you, goes that's where down. you make the money well right that's where he makes the money because again he's looking for that 20 25 percent return I'm looking for you know like a, a hundred thousand percent return right uh, no hyperbole but I'm looking for um, a home run he's just you know looking to get on base somewhere he's playing with a billion dollars and I'm not so um, yeah to, to kind of summarize um, if I like the stock at 20 cents and suddenly with no catalyst driving it down other than the market having a shitty day, I see it at 15 cents, I'm going to buy. And I'm going to average down a little bit, which a lot of money managers say never do that. I've had my, my, my Canadian broker said never, ever average down, never average down. And I'm just like, so you wouldn't buy Tesla at 125 bucks? All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Angel Research Podcast. My name is Jason Freert, and I'm here with legendary investor Alex Koifman. Would you call yourself legendary? To myself, yes. Iconic. Yeah. How long do you th- How long have you been an investor? Um, let me see. Like, how long do you have to be before you're legendary? Well, I think it's more a matter of how much you made. But you uh, think that's it? Yeah. I mean, um, I started my first trades were made um, in the early 2000s, so 20 years, more than 20 years. Right. Um, my first trade, I actually, uh, there was a company that imploded, Jesus, I can't even, WorldCom. WorldCom, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So they were like, trading at like $70, and uh, the stock collapsed after you know that whole debacle. And um, I just thought to myself, well, you know, the stock's going to collapse. It went down to like seven cents, right? And I was just thinking, there's no way in hell, even with even with the whole scandal and everything, there's no way in hell this company, you know, just its value it's only just, worth just seven dropped cents. by like a factor of a thousand, right? So I figured, you know, I'll I'll buy and see what happens. And I did actually, and it, it quintupled. I was, I was selling at 35 cents. So, um, of course, then I started getting greedy and... Uh, I figured that it would go up to maybe a dollar, you know, yeah. a little bit more, a little bit more. And then the company reorganized and it just went to zero. So, oh, so we were talking about catching a falling knife. That might be a, <laughs> that might be an example so, of what, what that is. So is that what um, started your passion for penny stocks? Um, Seven I guess cents that would be a com. penny stock. Um, I mean, the passion for penny stocks really, I think it comes like more from a philosophical standpoint, um, you know, these are companies that are essentially startups, and they probably shouldn't be public. Most most penny stocks should not be public. They're, there's just too much risk. Um, they shouldn't be available to the retail investor because, you know, those are the people that they don't know a whole lot. They they can do a whole lot of damage to themselves. And But I thought to myself, well, these are, you know, these are startup-level investments, and I can I don't mind the risk. You know, I can still sleep at night doing it, but the gains, the gain potential is huge, right? So theoretically, that's... That's uh, and I still stand by that theory. It's just that you really have to sift through a lot of garbage to find those, uh, you know, diamonds in the rough, so to speak. So. Right, and we've talked about this before, but penny stock doesn't necessarily 
mean that it's trading for pennies, right? right? How, do, how do you define a penny stock? Um, I usually don't use that term. I think that term, um, it's- Because it's it cheapens it. Well, it cheapens it. It's, it's misleading uh, because, yeah, you're right. First of all, it doesn't have to be trading for pennies. Um, I use the term micro cap or even nano cap, which is the next level down. And these are companies that are worth below $100 million, uh, maybe below $50 million for nano cap. Right. And so uh, that's how I think that stocks should be classified is based on the valuation of the company because Tesla could be trading for five cents if they had enough shares out. Right. If they reorganized and had like a trillion shares, sure, yeah, they could they could do that. Um, but uh, yeah, penny stock doesn't really mean a whole lot. So microcaps is, is what I like to be involved with. Okay. And so it's it's about the market capitalization, which is basically the number of outstanding shares times the price. Times the price, right. Um, and you can have a microcap trading for 10 bucks. So Right. So that's that's what you look at as actual market cap, which totally makes sense. And the and the quote unquote float is that's what causes it also to to move a lot, right? Well, the float is the is the, the volume of shares that's actually trading, right? That's available to be traded. So, so even if you know you take the volume, you know, if there's only, you know, what a hundred thousand dollars being traded in, in the stock daily or something, uh-huh. then if investors rush in because there's news or some sort of exciting, then then the stock moves rather. Quickly. It moves, moves radically, yeah. It's and, very and, volatile. And that's what you're looking for. That's what I'm looking for, yeah. That's that's what kind of gives you that uh, little bit of endorphin rush is when you right. see volume blow up and then, you know, commensurate moves uh, in the price. Then, yeah, that's, that's kind of what you're looking for. Um, that's not what you should be looking for. You don't want that endorphin rush. Uh, those endorphin rushes usually come with with collapses, you know, just like drug addiction and alcoholism. Uh, they're very high highs and very low lows. What you want is you want slow, organic, gradual growth that sort of- Even in the penny stocks. Sure. I mean, you know, the, the ultimate goal of a penny stockholder, microcap company stockholder, is uh, it not being a microcap anymore. You want it to be a small cap and then a medium cap. And right. You and you've, I mean, we've talked about this before recently. You took over the crow's nest, mm-hmm. which is focused on, I don't know what you would call it, small caps. But small to when medium they, cap. Small to medium cap. So you've even had, how many have you moved out of micro cap status to small cap? Has there been any that you moved in there yet? Um, no, I have not done that yet. Okay. Uh, everything, everything in the crow's nest portfolio so far is a, uh, it's just like a like dedicated only there. We right. started off as small caps and they're still for the most part there. So right. um, there there are potentially a couple that I might be able to move because now they're like in the two $300 million range. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if really that's the direction we want to take the crow's nest. I'm, I'm thinking right. we might want to keep it bigger, you know, just because uh, it's the risk involved, honestly. Like, uh, you know, we, we, we classify our readers, uh, you know, based on the stuff that they buy. And I think that they're not looking for the kind of risk that microcap investors are looking for. Right. So why mix the two since we right. have a dedicated microcap letter? And so we've talked about speculating versus investing. Right. Would you put microcap investing in purely the realm of speculating? 
And how would you even define speculating versus, versus um, investing? Well, I think that speculation is, it's, I mean, it's essentially the same thing. You know, you're putting money into a vehicle and you're waiting and then you're hoping that it increases in value. With speculators, I think that they, they are ready to take on more risk. They're ready to lose everything. Uh, they're ready to make big gains. Um, I think speculation is closer to betting than, than it is to investing. And with microcaps, um, these companies are often pre-revenue, you know, definitely pre-profit. And so you don't have enough fundamentals to be making sort of, you know, measured investment steps, like your uh, in investment decisions. You're making sp speculative decisions and you're basing it on uh, suspicion, hopes. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking at where the market is going and what role this company may play in the future. And so, you know, you look up the word speculative and it's there's a lot more doubt involved with investment. You're supposed to be much more sure, you know, like you're like if, if you're if your bull thesis gets undermined, it's supposed to be uh, because something unexpected happened or because, uh, you know, something something new appeared and changed the, the market entirely. With speculation, if you lose everything, you shouldn't be too shocked. You know, like it should just be, you know, it's it's part of the game. Uh, right. You win some, you lose some. And hopefully you can play long enough to make the big wins, which is uh, which is kind of my system. <clears throat> uh, I remember, I forget who said this, but it was like a, a really concise summary of, uh, of, what's, of what microcap investing is. It's, it's not how much money you lose. It's how much... It's not how much money you make, it's how much you don't lose. Right. Because the longer you keep doing it, the, the higher your chances are of finding that one that's, that will, you know, completely change your position. So Right. So you're looking for that 10x or, or, or more, more sure. that really makes all the other losses worth it. Yeah, exactly. And, and it washes out all the other losses. Yeah. Um, in terms of breakdown, I mean – either you personally or what you put out there, what do you think is a good percentage for playing in some of these plays? I mean, I think it goes without saying that you shouldn't, let's say you have $100,000 to invest that, and that's your, that's your total investment capital. I wouldn't say net worth because that necessarily, but your liquid net worth, I guess. Mm -hmm. Putting that all in five penny stocks is not um, yeah, I mean, I would not recommend that to anybody. Have I done that exact thing? Yes, I have. <laughs> um, I, I go I, on. I am, <laughs> I am much more risk tolerant than I think uh, your average investor. Um, you still have to do it with a kind of clear head, and you have to be sort of sober about it. But yeah, I, I have done that. I've put ridiculous amounts of money. I've put six figures into a single penny stock before. And uh, uh, as far as percentages go, um, you know, they say don't invest what you can't lose. So that applies specifically to high risk, high risk, high risk stocks. Um, you should you should find your own comfort zone. I think, honestly, that's that's the best way to go about it. Find your own comfort zone, uh, figure out what your goals are, figure out how much you can lose. Uh, everybody's going to be different. Um, I'm not uh, a financial manager. I'm not giving anybody any advice. But for me personally, I know that if I do well, if I do really well just once or twice, uh, it's it's going to be good enough for me. And so I kind of operate that way. I, that said, I do have very safe investments. Um, 
I, I've, I've been a real estate investor before. I have an IRA, uh, I have ETFs, um, everything, you know, it's, it's allocated, but I do allocate more for the very high risk stuff for sure. Right. So specifics, um, let's talk about what you would, what's your best investment? Well, best um, investment in, in, in percentage at, gain. Yeah. Or, well, I, well, I can do both. We can do yeah. percentage gain. Yeah. Um, so for percentage gain, um, I had a 20 bagger in 2021, um, okay. which is pretty good. Um, in, gonna... in just one year? No, it was not just one year. Yeah. Um, this was kind of a, a long hold. Um, this stock was in the portfolio. So my readers actually were investing alongside me for this one. I recommended it to the readers at around 42 cents. The stock, as it often does, dipped almost immediately after the recommendation. Um, it went down to like 17 cents. Uh, a couple of months went by, I ended up getting in at 25. Um, I bought something like 50,000 shares. So it wasn't, it was, it was like, I mean, it was like a 12 some thousand dollar investment, um, which was a huge mistake because it, you know, it went up by about 2000%. With the with the readers, I recommended that they get out after an only 245% gain. And you can actually see that in the model portfolio. And the reason I did that was because I, I have a lot more trouble uh, suggesting to other people to take the kind of risks that I take. So I, I recommended the sale. I held on. And then around 2020, um, that entire sector that this that this stock was in, which is in the electric motor, uh, electric car sort of universe. Um, it started to go up and it started to, to shoot up pretty dramatically and I ended up getting getting out at around five bucks. So there you go, about a $250,000 win on a single stock that started off as a penny stock and it was, our, was a small cap and, by the time and, it was over. And we don't want it, is this still in the portfolio? Um, no, it is It is no longer in the portfolio, but the stock is dipped uh, because after 2021, um, that entire sector kind of came back to reality and it dipped to the point where I think it can be re-recommended again. Um, it, the company is well along, I mean, it's farther along than it was when it was at five bucks. Company is doing great. Um, the technology is more advanced. Uh, they have more deals on the way, but the market isn't cooperating. So it's an inefficiency. I think it would be something our readers might be interested in. But okay, so you're you're keeping that close to your. I'm going to keep that one close to my vest. <laughs> as far as uh, as far as gains on a single investment, um, that unfortunately is not going to be a stock. That was the last house that I sold. Right. So um, you know. There you go. Uh, that was a safe investment, um, but it it went up forty percent in three years, which is unreal too. I think I just got lucky with that. So, even after after fees and everything, we we made over three hundred grand. Yeah, I I think that is pretty common for people, um, you know, and it and it kind of I mean, real estate has been a tried and true investment. You know, I mean, there's the reason, you know, Donald Trump and these guys are all in into that sort of thing over yeah. a period of time it just appreciates it doesn't go down it, it, it may flatline for a while but it just doesn't really go down right it's just all the things we've talked about is it's not liquid right you you know there is volatility in the market where you might be quote unquote underwater or whatever for a period of time but over it smooths out over a, a period of time yeah. for the most part yeah, I mean, part. and I, I don't recommend real estate investment uh, 
as, as like a hobby. It's it was a huge pain in the ass. Uh, moving is a huge pain in the ass, but it was worth it. And one of the main reasons we sold the house was, you know, uh, we got out of that house and bought the next one for cash. And I had enough cash left over to do a bunch of stuff to the new house. and Right, which right now, with interest rates being what they are, is a smart move if you can do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, um, you know, if, you, if you're forced to pay a 7.5%, mortgage rate, on a on a house or higher with you know some sort of jumbo loan or or whatever, um, you know that's a lot more of a monthly outlay. Yeah, than, that's crazy. Than People are doing you're it. paying when it was at two. Do you, you remember know, what I, it was like in the '90s? Do you remember what interest rate like back then? Oh well, yeah. I mean, I was in high school in the '90s, but well, so <laughs> I uh, I was digging through um, some of my parents' old files because I was just cleaning stuff up and I found their their settlement statement from 1991. They had something like a 17% yeah. mortgage, which compels you to pay it off as quickly as possible, which is exactly what they did. You can't, I mean, that's right. that's just, you know, that's that's unsustainable, but that kind of kept prices down, you know, that, that controlled the real estate market a little bit. You know, and then the insanity started when we were like 2%. People are buying houses left and right and so. Yeah, it seems concerning that, you know, I don't know what the historical average is on, you know, mortgage rates, but yeah, compared to that, a six, 7% mortgage rate is sure. nothing. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> historically, I think it might be around 5% or something, but the idea of a mortgage isn't even that old, right? You know, I, I think, you know, go back 75 years, uh, 100 years, and there there wasn't even that. You had to pay cash for whatever you get. And most people did not own a home. Yeah. So um, that has unlocked, you know, some wealth for a, a large swath of the, of the public just by, you know, being able to actually own that. And then it appreciates and people can... Well, it made banks bigger too. Right. So... <laughs> Uh, that may be one of the driving forces behind it is that it's just a huge revenue stream for right and now the banks are just like uh forget it we're not we're just gonna buy the house and we're not and we're gonna rent it out we're gonna rent it out to yeah well is that a sign of decline i don't know we'll see um all right so switching gears um let's talk about what your favorite stock is or sector going forward are you still on the are you still on the lithium train are I'm gonna, you st- I'm gonna be on the lithium train I'm gonna be on the lithium train um, more so even now than a year ago um, and I, I talk about this almost every week you know it's 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 crazy to see what's happening uh, they uh, lithium prices have fallen somewhere between 77 and 80 percent uh, since the peaks the peaks were in like November December 2022 so a little over a year now um, what is uh, Wall Street blaming this collapse on? They're blaming it on sort of lackluster EV sale numbers, right? And if you look at EV sales across the last three years, just like a month-by-month chart, and I think we actually have a pretty cool chart that illustrates it, EV sales are increasing every goddamn month. They're increasing year over year. Over year. They just, what, expected it to be like well, here's, hyperbolic. Here's uh, what... I, Here's what I think is going on. So uh, December 2021, um, U.S. US uh, EV market was something like 50,000 uh, cars sold. December 2021. 
That same month, the following year, it was 80,000. So we're looking at um, more than a 50% increase, right? Like 30,000 uh, per month increase. The following year, 2023, December that just came, went by, it was over 100,000. So we went from a 50% increase to more like a 25% increase, but it's still a similar step up. I don't know if they were just expecting it to go up 50% every, like, every month, year over year, just on into infinity, but right. it's, they're breaking, they're breaking sales records every month. Um, they're making EVs. Com- I mean, these huge companies, these Chinese companies would not be, would not be investing in the industry if the product was a lemon. They just wouldn't be doing it. But yes, it, it didn't meet Wall Street's expectations. And I think on top of that, uh, lithium speculation was just off the charts. And so um, if you look at that chart, the EV sales versus lithium prices, you'll see it's just insane. They the lithium prices shot up during this same period of time, 2021 through 2023. They shot up from less than $10,000 a ton to almost $80,000 a ton and then back down to $20,000 a ton. And the pattern of EV sale growth has literally been the same the whole time. Well, well, the thing I think maybe gets overlooked in this story is car prices in general, you know, with the pandemic and this whole supply chain shortage, like shot up. Mm-hmm. insane like used and new car prices shot up in general so i don't know if just cars in general were sort of just getting to a reach where consumers are like hey well maybe i'm not gonna you know buy a car this year because it's gone up 25 percent. okay but when past. did that when did that price uh like skyrocket happen I mean, it was what, like two years ago, which probably? was when, which was when lithium was topping out. Yeah, like, yeah, it was, it was and I think also, then. I mean, the longest. The, I don't know where it as is at now as far as hybrids, but it used to be that, you know, if you wanted a hybrid version of a particular car, like let's take like a CRV or a Civic or mm-hmm. one of these like sort of base um, things, you were paying anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars more for a hybrid version of that mm-hmm. car. And it was just, just a hybrid. We're not talking about a electric vehicle plug-in. It was just, a, you know, you get better gas mileage. Yeah. And then, you know, consumers can do the math and they're like, okay, I get, you know, eight miles to the gallon more, like, but gas prices are this, like, it's just not worth I, it. I don't think it adds up. Uh, that, I, I mean, yeah, paying that much more for what you win, I don't think that really adds up. I think that there's a lot more at play. Uh, you know, people want to be, they want to be kind of with the trend, you know, and uh, these sleek new cars are cool looking. I have no idea. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think based on, on that rationale, I would change from the car that I have today, you know, like uh, just saving, like increasing my, my mileage by 10% or right. 15%. is not going right. to, it's not going to change my mind. But, you know, you have to think about the other the other sort of segments of the of the of that same market uh, that drive lithium um, wireless devices, that market's blown up. That's not going anywhere. The average lithium powered wireless device lasts for three years, right? Three years. So you know that we need a constant flow of them. We have there are 22 million wireless devices in operation around the world right now. 20 oh, not 22 million, 22 billion, 22 billion. And so every three years, and the demand is increasing. They're going to be. It's not just that we need to replace those every three years. We need more of them and more of them. And so between that and distributed energy storage, the market for just rechargeable batteries, which almost always is a lithium ion, it's just it's getting pushed up, up, up. And I don't think it's going anywhere. What happened was the bubble popped. 
Right. The bubble popped. All of those exuberant, crazy investors that you know thought that you know this was the next greatest thing. They all they all cashed out, probably lost money. And so now what happens is you know we went down to about twenty thousand, and now we start the slow, gradual, organic growth. The same kind that we saw after the dot com bubble burst. If you look at you know they thought that the dot com bubble was the end of tech. Right, but if you look at the Nasdaq from 2000 onwards, the dot com bubble was like a little glit, like a little blip on the radar compared to what happened afterwards. Right. It exploded, and now it's the whole world. You know, like consumer electronics, just I don't know, tenfold growth probably since then. So there's probably a um, comparison to when oil went up to 150 dollars a barrel, and basically all of the SUV demand, like fell off the clip. I mean, that's when like Hummer went bang, you know, like everyone's driving these huge, you know, when oil was cheap, like, oh, let's get these massive like SUVs that can't even fit in your garage. Yeah. And they had eight miles to the gallon and then oil prices and it was like, oh, crap. And people were like, I'm not buying that. I'm not paying that much for gas and blah, blah, blah. blah. And then, of course, when when that collapsed back down, now you're starting to see them come back, but they're just a little bit more, like you said, that organic growth. Yeah, it's organic. Of... It's not, you know, there's not much excitement there, but it's growing slowly. Uh, I think maybe earlier in oil's history, something like that happened. Like initially in the 20s or 30s, there was a big explosion and then it kind of dropped off. And then, you know, oil became, you know, the thing that ran the world. The same, the same way that kind of wireless devices do now. You know, they're everywhere. We couldn't live without them. So, yes, long story short, um, I'm still into lithium. Um, lithium uh, comprises a large um, fraction of my own portfolio, and I'm as hard as it is sometimes to watch. You know the daily price fluctuations. I'm just sitting, waiting, uh, buying more uh, when the opportunity strikes. So I, I don't know. Um, yes, I'm, I'm. I'm sticking with this one. I'm sticking with this one. And and your plays tend to sort of mirror some of the oil plays that we've done well with, which they are not necessarily – they're like more technology plays mm -hmm. on yes. actually getting the lithium yes, out yeah. of the ground. Because, yes. you know, lithium's interesting. It's like not – I don't even know – like it's not like oil. You just drill down like, hey, this oil – I mean, you know, or fracking, I guess. It's, it's like – they have to do a bunch of shit to get the lithium well, out. That's for that's for traditional lithium lithium mining. Um, yeah, I mean it's hard rock mining. You have to go in, you have to kind of dig a bunch of rocks out, and then you have to process them. You have to find it first. Uh, the exploration itself can take years. So um, one of the one of our plays right now is a direct lithium extraction company that pulls lithium out of oil field brine, and there that is a technology company that came up with a process, a scalable process, to source very clean, very cheap lithium um, from a place where we already know it exists to the point where we know the concentrations. You know, we can just, almost any oil field brine there is, and oil field brine is what is used in fracking. It's, right. it's, it's the, the water that is pumped into the ground. Yeah. It just basically squeezes everything up to the surface. So, um, yes, they came up with a method to to source this lithium uh, much more scientifically. They know how much they're going to get. They don't need to look for it because they already know it's there. So that is one of my favorite uh, stocks of all time, probably. And stocks of all time? Of all time, yes. And okay. I don't say that uh, outside of our promotions. I don't say that very often. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think that I'm, I'm going to hold on to this one for, for a while, and I'm very excited. Uh, it can literally change the world. It can turn any oil and gas producing operation into a lithium operation in just a couple of weeks. You know, you just install a, a production plant on site and just filter the water right through it. And you don't, you don't disrupt anything of their right. existing revenue stream. You just create a new one uh, that dovetails very well with where we're going in terms of just, you know, decarbonization. So. Right. And fracking, it, it's very interesting because fracking has, I mean, that's most of the oil production now in the U.S., right? right? And the U.S. is now like the top oil producer yeah. in the, I mean, we're going to uh, talk to Keith next week and, you know, he's, he knows all about that business. Yep. Um, but as long as the environmentalists, I guess, stay out of the way or allow, you know, I don't know what the administration is doing or not doing to allow expansion in here. But if they wanted to, the oil, the U.S. can unlock a shitload of oil and just, you know, basically provide all of our oil that we'll need for the next, you know, 50 years. If, yeah. if it is politically allowed to. This seems like it's a perfect just sort of complement to that. Like you said, with the transition, it's like, okay, we have to do this oil right now. Everybody wants to, you know, move to a, I don't know, fully electric grid, I, I guess. About, or like, I don't know about everybody, but uh, a lot of people do think that's right. the right way to go. Right. So you can extract this oil that we need and we're probably going to still need forever. Um but also extract the lithium that is needed to make this transition for batteries yeah, yeah, and electric I mean, it's, vehicles. It's great. And, and, yeah, all that kind and, of stuff. and you're right, we can't we can't just swear off oil overnight. The, the world would collapse if we tried to do that. It's it's impossible. You know, we still run the vast majority of our road going vehicles on fossil fuels. So um, well, yeah, that's what happens. You know, the US was the first oil market and it was also the first market to sort of run out of uh, conventionally sourced oil and we had to we have to figure new things out. And the same thing is working on with lithium right now. We are way behind the Chinese in lithium production, but uh, hard rock mining isn't the way to go. This is the way to go. And we have to be smarter. We can't just work harder because the Chinese have put way too much time and effort into doing it the old fashioned way. And we can leapfrog them, I think. So. Yeah, we have the resources. So it's just the will, I guess, political will and the technology we have. So. Um, you know, energy independence in this new environment of geopolitical strife. It's important. You don't want to be reliant on uh, China and Russia. So, yeah, certainly not. Um, last thing we talked about: how does the how does vanadium play into the lithium story? Is it complementary? Is it is it the next thing after, or is it just a different use case? It's a different, I think it's it's completely different. Different enough that I don't think the two really threaten each other. Uh, lithium ion is uh, the, the standard for distributed energy storage solutions, but it's not very practical. Lithium ion batteries start to degrade uh, very rapidly after about 500 charge discharge cycles. Vanadium batteries last 20,000 or more. And so if you want to build like a solar farm, 
that has like a 25 year lifespan and you're gonna need batteries obviously to store the excess energy. Having, having a lithium uh, distributed energy storage system to go along with that is not gonna be very cost effective. Even though lithium per kilowatt hour installed is one tenth the cost of vanadium. But because vanadium is gonna last 40 times longer, you're gonna end up making way more, it's safer too, there's fire, no fire risk. But um, yeah, vanadium initially is much more expensive. Um, vanadium costs something like five bucks a pound for 95% pure vanadium, but you need like 99.5% to 99.9% .9 pure vanadium for batteries. And that stuff can cost between one and $200 an ounce. So um, therein lies your problems. Uh, you're never gonna have a phone that you're gonna keep for 25 years, right? Like you, you don't care. You, like, by the time your lithium battery runs out on your phone, you're probably gonna wanna, you're, you're gonna be looking for a new phone already. So in that sense, they don't really conflict, but for certain applications, specifically distributed energy storage, vanadium is probably gonna be, um, gonna become more and more standard. The only problem with vanadium uh, for mass consumption is that 80% of it is consumed in the steel refining. So they add vanadium to metal. Okay. To make steel alloys, and so there's gonna be competition for that, but again, you know, if there's more demand for it, we're gonna figure out how to get more of it. and. If it's cost effective, it's going to be used. So uh, I think there's a big future in that. I'm banking on it. We're pursuing this idea actively for Microcap Insider, and uh, you know, it's not not quite as sexy as a Tesla, you know, but right. Still, it's uh, distributed energy storage is going to be a big deal, especially for North American infrastructure because our power grid is overloaded. The power grid is old, decrepit. We can either rebuild it completely or we can create like, you know, like these sort of independent little oases of uh, microgrids is what they're calling them. And right. So, and so that way it supports the existing the existing uh, power grid, and it also insulates us from, you know, blackouts, things like that. So. Yeah, and I think that, you know, obviously AI has been the huge story over the past, I guess, year or two, ma mainly just the past year since the whole ChatGBT launched. And now I think people, the first hiccup and bottleneck that existed in the, in the scaling of AI is these, you know, chips, you know, that's why NVIDIA has gone mm -hmm. nuts. Um, people want the chips, the processors. The, the next thing seems to be just the, the data centers. And to run these data centers, you need a tremendous amount of energy. And there's not a lot of, um, you, you know, you can't just build a data center you know, in the middle of a, of a city, right? You kind of have to have it. It's, it's like a, it's gotta be, you want it close enough to a city, but kind of far removed. Yeah. So, you know, and there's just massive power consumption. So a lot of these um, planned data centers now, they require pretty much their own grid. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are wanting to be solar power powered. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you can't, you know, the sun doesn't shine at night. If they're wind powered, the wind doesn't. So they need some sort of storage option for if they're going to run on solar. And so they need these batteries. And so you're saying that that might be something that I think there's a good chance that they're going to. Yeah, they're probably going to stick to vanadium because it's just it's so much cheaper over the long haul. It's more reliable. It's again, uh, fire hazard, even though lithium fire hazard is 
is largely overblown. There's zero fire hazard with vanadium. So, yeah, and it's Sam Altman, did you hear what he said about how much money he wants to raise to develop? Like uh, a trillion dollars no, or five, something? Five trillion. Five trillion. Five trillion dollars, which is like ten times um, the, annual, the annual earnings of the entire the consumer tech I, industry. Is, is, so he wants to raise it to do what? To... to to, for AI chip manufacturer in North America. Okay. And I think there, there was, there was like some back and forth on X over it. And at the end of it, he was like, fuck it, let's just do $8 trillion. I don't know how serious this guy I think he may be, you know, sniffing his own farts a little bit too much. But uh, obviously, he's a really smart guy. He's sort of on the cutting edge of this new thing. You're probably going to see some form of that happening for sure. Right. Especially if the Chinese invade Taiwan. You know, that's going to be... Yeah, that seems to be the... Right now, that the biggest sort of global economic threat is if Taiwan, specifically Taiwan Semiconductor, which provides like... So NVIDIA, it's not like NVIDIA makes these chips. They are designing them and like have almost like a royalty model um, they're partnered with people like Taiwan Semiconductor to produce these chips. So if if Taiwan gets shut down and they have to shut down that, like, I, I mean, the world almost stops immediately. Yeah. I'm almost, and for that reason, I'm a little, a little doubtful. God, I'm, I'm going to eat my words, but I'm a little doubtful that the Chinese are going to do it. They're they're too smart and they're too measured in the decisions they make. They're basically the opposite of the Russians. And I, I am Russian, so I can say that they're they're not going to their their own business model is going to suffer if they if they do that. And they've already seen, as an example from the Russians, what happens when invasions like this take place. You're you may not get what you want, really. And why would the Chinese actually want to change the trajectory of anything right now? It seems like what they're doing is working out pretty well. They should develop their own, you know, their own local chip production, just like we should. For sure, but um, I don't know if war is gonna. I don't know if wars in in the future there, but it doesn't matter. We still need to have domestic uh, chip production grow by like a hundredfold. You know, it's it, yeah, it's stupid to be dependent on somebody that you don't know will be there for you a couple of years down the line. So yeah, and that that takes a lot of investment. Uh, I don't. I guess it's five trillion, eight, eight trillion. But I think the the thing that people don't really understand. And it's hard for just humans to wrap their mind around the exponential growth of these things. Like when you talk about growing at, you know, like 20% a year or whatever, that if it does that for the next 20 years, it's it's insane. I mean, if you could compound your money at 20% a year, which is, you know, what Buffett does, then you end up the richest man in in, in the world. So. Um, I it's think he's ha- averaged like twenty six percent for thirty years, and yeah, yeah it's just hundred billion dollars personally. Yeah, and and he's playing with these large sums of money, which to me makes it even more impressive because, like you said, he's not buying penny stocks here because he he has. Yeah, the, he couldn't. Yeah. I mean, he couldn't really do much. Just, so. So people should be thankful that they aren't rich like Buffett, right? Because they get to play yes, in these penny stocks, right? I mean. He's he's not even that good at spending money, you know. Like to him, it's a game. Right. So, the, the guy, the guy's beach house is like two rows back from from the shore. He didn't. Even he doesn't buy even ocean have. Front. He doesn't even have an oceanfront beach house. No, man. He bought a used <laughs> private jet. Still lives in the same house he lived in in the fifties in Omaha. I mean, 
uh, to him, money isn't. Uh, it's not about. It's not about Ferraris and you know like Gulf Streams. It's it's the game. Right, and that's probably why he's so successful. Right. Yeah, I think so. We we talked about this earlier. The idea of like so you sold like they the psychological part of investing to me is one of the hardest things to crack. Yeah. So, you know, when to sell, when not to sell, when to buy. If you're looking at a stock and you you obviously just don't pick a random stock and invest in it, you're researching it, looking at all the different factors. When you know you're going to make an investment in a stock, what's your strategy in terms of like when to actually are you looking for a, a dip in in uh, in the market are you just looking for when capital becomes available to invest um you know i mean there's a lot of there's so many different elements that it's hard to create a hard and fast rule with that um buying dips is I mean, you see, you only know it's a dip after the fact, right? Because it's more of a decline if you're buying. So, you know, you don't, yeah, like the dip has to have come and gone for it to be a dip. So that's that's kind of tricky. Uh, for me, um, I research the company. I try to figure out what catalysts they're expecting at least. Uh, I obviously don't know if the catalyst is going to come or not. But if I know that there are certain things lined up, that if they work out the way the company expects, uh, they're going to work out in my favor, then I try to um, obviously do it before all those catalysts come along. Uh, money being available obviously plays a role as well. Um, if a stock that I really, really believe in, just to get back to the dip thing, if a stock that I really, really believe in, that I say I've already bought half a million shares at 20 cents and suddenly nothing has changed but it's at 15 cents, yeah, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it because I... I mean, I believe in my own thesis, and if I liked it at twenty cents, why wouldn't I like it at fifteen cents? Well, that's been Buffett's whole idea: is that you should be excited when a stock that you own that's how you, goes that's where down. you make the money. Well, right. that's where he makes the money because again, he's looking for that twenty twenty five percent return. I'm looking for, you know, like a, a hundred thousand percent return, right? Uh, you know, hyperbole, but I'm looking for um, a home run. He's just, you know, looking to get on base somewhere. He's playing with a billion dollars and I'm not. So, um, yeah, to, to kind of summarize, um, if I like the stock at 20 cents and suddenly with no catalyst driving it down other than the market having a shitty day, I see it at 15 cents, I'm going to buy and I'm going to average down a little bit, which a lot of money managers say, never do that. I've had my, my, my Canadian broker said never ever average down, never average down, and I'm just like, so you wouldn't buy Tesla at 125 bucks, you know? I mean, I don't understand what's the what's the thought process behind. I could not, not figure out. I didn't pursue that conversation. I was just like, okay, look, dude, you have 30 years of experience managing people's money, which makes me think that you didn't make the bulk of your money investing. You made the bulk of your money off fees. So right, um, not averaging down um, in the total absence of, of, of negative news just seems completely counterintuitive to me. So Right. When you, um, in terms of, you know, like you said, we have IRAs and stuff, the, the bulk of the gains that you are getting, if you're consistently adding to your IRA, IRA or, or whatever, are going to come on like the down days, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, yeah, you're buying as it goes, but if there's a down year where the market's down 20% and you continue to buy during that, 
then you have that much more capital accumulated when it comes back. Now, that's easy to do when you're just buying like a market index fund or whatever. Uh, You know, a a little bit, I I guess maybe the thought is like, hey, if it, you know, if it's going down, there might be a reason and it might continue to go down. But like you said, you have to have that high conviction in the stock. So real quick on stop losses. I think we've talked about stop losses before, uh-huh. and you're—I I mean, would you call yourself anti-stop loss? Um, not really. I don't know if I'm anti. I let's just put it this way: like, I don't. Um, I don't. I, I've gotten out of the habit of dumping stocks that I've lost on. I, I mean, I've—I have—I have stocks in my portfolio that have been there for years, and and I haven't sold them because they're down. Um, I'm not. I don't want to realize the loss. So um, I think that it's a good stop losses are a good way to keep yourself asleep at night for certain people. Uh, for me, it just I just I don't. I think maybe if you if you trade enough, enough volume, enough different stocks, and I really don't. I you know I own not that many. I I'm very I'm very passionate about a couple, and that's what I own. So um, yeah, that seems to be the the focus that we have here at Angel is like you're going to be digging in and researching a sector, a type of stock just 24-7 and you stay in that lane so that you know you're, you are a true expert in that sector. Um, if you're trying to, if you buy too many, you're almost, well, you, you almost might as well just buy the S&P 500 or the, sure. or the NASDAQ, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? So, um, I mean, and are, you gonna, are you going to stop loss that? Like if you if you buy uh, if you right no you're just going to keep waiting because time is the most important element really time is the most important element in investing and so you know most of the time your time will come you just need to wait long enough a lot of people just never get there you know they yeah any sense it does I always feel like and I have done this before I've done this with crypto right sold too early yeah me too and and uh, I've learned over time that you just have to not follow it as closely that's true um, and that's, not that's let an it get into advice. your head excellent advice don't don't look at the tickers every day if you bought a stock and you know you're going to hold it for a year yeah. or a year and a half forget it's even there if you can um and anytime you get like that little bit of adrenaline in your chest that tells you to, to sell ignore that that's the emotion that you're not supposed to employ at all in making these decisions so. Right. You don't want to spend. You don't want to start spending that money in your in your head. Like, uh, oh my God, I'm up. I'm up uh, twenty five thousand dollars on this on this stock. I could, you know, either sell it and do whatever with it, or I could roll it into another stock or whatever. You just let it ride, and that's, I just pretend the money's gone. Right. Always. Always. As soon as it's bought, it's just like I, I'm. I'm that much poorer now. So that way you're never disappointed. Right, and that's the whole ad- idea of investing. Only investing what you can afford to lose, and which is seems to be numero uno maxim. Um, I would investing. say yes. I would say that that's that's something that we need to make sure that everybody understands. We support. Uh, don't invest more than you can lose. Right. I feel like we say it every single time. I don't think I did the disclaimer in the beginning either. Well, you, this is an investment advice. We can only give you the tools and ideas and yeah, strategies. We're just, we're just talking. Yeah, we're just, we're just talking, talking about right? stuff. Yeah. yeah, we're just talking about stuff, right? 
Um, all right. Well, thanks again, Alex, for coming Absolutely. on the show. Um, I think we can put a link to um, sign up to your newsletter and now newsletters, um, including we didn't talk about your Uber high end. Uh, we're probably going to have sort of high net worth. Yeah, in, we're going to leave. We're going to have to leave that one for next time. For next time, yeah, it's called First Call, and it's for the, it's for the real, the really high risks, uh, right? And then the, I mean, they're essentially illiquid or, or non-public, um, non-public companies that are trying to get public, and uh, private financings of private companies. Right. So. But, yeah, that's that's another topic that's okay. interesting. Okay, we'll do it next time. All right, thanks again. Remember to like, follow, subscribe. Follow – I would say follow Alex on Twitter, but I think he's been banned. Yeah, I've been, I was X. banned. Yeah, so you have to sign up to his newsletter instead. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you.